I mean, I love how evolution, which is like this fundamental principle of life, um, can be applied so universally across different diseases because it's fundamental. It, like it is the thing that allows change to happen. And if you understand that, you understand those rules, uh, you can develop therapies that just couldn't have existed before. Today, NFX Bio general partner Omri Jory is sitting down with Jacob Glanville, founder of Centivax, and Nick Goldner, founder of Resistance Bio, to go deep on platforms and biology. Here's their conversation on how an evolutionary approach can lead to better cancer therapies and universal vaccines, how to make key decisions as a scientist founder, and their advice for fundraising and tech bio. Let's jump in. People like to say that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But in biology, we know that usually what doesn't kill you mutates and tries again. We see it all the time. It can be cancer that gets resistance to medication after medication and come back stronger every time. Uh, we can see it with bacteria that get resistance to antibiotics and new virus strains that can elude immunity uh, when we get uh, vaccines. Uh, so today we have really amazing uh, guests. We have Jake and Nick. Each of them are dedicated to solve this hugely important problem. Jake is working on viruses with his universal vaccine company, Centivax, and Nick with his company, Resistant Bio, trying to tackle the cancer-resistant problem. So welcome, Nick and Jake. Thank you. Thank you. Great to see you. Okay, let's start with a quick uh, quick background. Like, How did you become a scientist founder, Nick? Yeah, I'm a four-season athlete, and uh, during that time, I lose about 30 pounds in about three months. Um, I lose so much blood uh, during that time that I actually have to stand up a few minutes before class uh, is is over to keep from fainting so that I can actually make it to my next class. Um, And so while I'm very publicly suffering uh, from what will be later diagnosed as Crohn's disease, A very good family friend of ours, Sonia, this um, single mother, she's a war refugee, she's a scientist, all-around badass, uh, secretly battling cancer. Um, And so, you know, we're both in this situation where the people who are supposed to be able to help us, our doctors, are just at a loss. They're floundering, right? They don't know what to do. And so she helps me through this really tough time. Uh, And after months of searching for an answer, uh, we're both put on therapies that send us into remission. And for the first time in a really long time, um, we both have hope again. Now, fast forward, it's my sophomore year of college, and basically everything shifts. Um, I'm on this quadruple dose of my my therapy, um, and I have this infection in my arm from a surgery. And as I'm walking away from the hospital, um, I had just fired my doctor because he was like, well, we'll just put you on more drug. And it clearly wasn't working. And so like, I needed new options. I get this call from Sonia, and she says, hey, how are you doing? And I said, I just got back from the hospital. And she says, well, I hope you got good news because I've got some pretty terrible news, um, like cancer relapse. And um, you know, for her, the, the, the goal right? Because she's a single mother is to survive long enough for her son to, you know, get through college, get a job and so that he can thrive. And so during this time, you know, I I go and get my PhD. She's, you know, on this new medication. And while she's, you know, being killed by this cancer, she dedicates her life to kill cancer. And we would go back and forth, um, you know, talking, you know, about what I was studying on antibiotic resistance and what she was physically experiencing um, as a cancer patient. And with the advances of modern medicine, this like just tough as nails woman like actually does it. You know, she beats cancer long enough uh, to see her son thrive. And like, I, it, it was just wow. an incredible thing. And so in the winter of 21, Sonia passed away. Uh, she died of cancer during the height of the COVID pandemic because the cancer found a way to basically beat the best therapies that we had available, like cancer one. And in biology, we often focus on this question of, you know, what is the start? How does cancer exist? You know, where does cancer come from? 
But really, we need to be asking ourselves the second question, which is, how does cancer survive our best attempts at trying to kill? Because it can do things that we can't even possibly imagine. And that's what resistance bio does. That's what we're here to do. We're here to figure out all the different ways that cancer can fight back so that we can develop therapies and diagnostics that help guide cancer decisions so that we can fight cancer and let patients win. Very personal story. I actually didn't know it. So amazing. Thank you. My, uh, my, well, my uncle had polio. My grandfather died of tuberculosis. And I mean, the reality is with people talk about humanity being its own worst enemy and it's nonsense, right? It's pathogens. Then our most ancient enemies, they affect every one of us within months of birth and they kill more than, than every generation, every war combined, and they, they'll keep doing it. Uh, the cancer is the battle within. And that's an important one. We need to track that too. This is a battle with, without there's, there's an opportunity with infectious disease to eliminate it. And I think that's what's drawn me to this. So when I sold my last company, uh, the normal thing to do would be to go out onto a beach for a couple of years. And I definitely had people tell me that, like, oh, just goof off. Right. And, and the reason I didn't, and the reason I founded Cinevax was that I had been building a technology to focus the immune system on the sites of viruses that can't mutate, They're the Achilles heel. And they all have them. And we've only really been aware of this for like the last 20 years, but flu and coronaviruses, HIV, they have these little sites. And if you can just focus on them, you could have broad spectrum vaccines. And the reason that I felt like I couldn't leave is that the technology was working. And, you know, I'm proud of what I did at Distributed Bio. I'm proud of that company. But if I look at like the legacy of my work, it's like maybe over 20 years, 25 years that the drugs that I produce, the 78 antibody therapeutics and the partners will will have its day. And then a smart people will come along and new drugs will come along and that'll be the limit of my my period of influence in biotechnology. But with vaccines, I looked at what we were making and I realized, you know, smallpox was on the face of the pharaohs. You know, it killed ancient kings. And yet in 1980, we eradicated it. That's like a remarkable accomplishment to end a pathogen forever until the end of time. And then we stopped. We we it's ridiculous. It's like it's almost like space flight where we were able to get to the moon and then we cut it out for 40 years. And I have to think that we can do better than the 70s, uh, particularly in this this biotechnology revolution that we're currently living in and surfing on, you know, the the pressure from a recent pandemic. And so I had this technology and I'm like, I can't walk away from this because this would be the single greatest achievement I could do in my lifetime to affect the largest number of people in my own generation and every generation that comes afterwards. Because eliminating a pathogen is, is it's, it, it is unique in medicine that a vaccine can eliminate a disease. And so that's the reason I founded the company and drove my wife nuts and, and, and <laughs> went from out of the frying pan and into the fire because we had this opportunity to go create this broad spectrum vaccine technology and have that kind of lasting impact that I, I just didn't think any else, any other work I would do would be able to live up to that level of accomplishment. And so I felt that I had an obligation to do so. And so that's what Cinevax does is we create universal vaccines. Amazing, amazing impact. And that was the next question, the impact, but it's pretty obvious that if you figure out the conserved mechanism of resistance for cancer, you can make a big dent there. And then if you figure out the common conserved areas of viruses and create vaccines against them and eliminate viruses forever, you know, what a big impact. And by the way, I think both companies have some revenge to do, revenge on cancer and revenge on COVID. And, the flu. So, <laughs> and, and revenge on evolution, because when you think about it, that's exactly what we're doing. That's the bad side of evolution. Everything that, uh, you know, grows fast and mutates, there is always genetic uh, changes. And uh, especially if you're trying to kill it, you create a lot of genetic um, evolutionary pressure to survive. And those who survive thrive. So we need to actually 
figure out the way around it, which is pretty hard. So we answered about the impact question, but uh, let me dig a little bit more about the platform itself. You know, at NFX, we like to invest in, in platform technologies. What make your core tech a, a platform technology? Yeah. So the biggest thing, so I'm, I'm a microbiologist by training. Um, so I grew up, uh, you know, studying uh, bacteria, figuring out, you know, for all intents and purposes, when you think about resistance, we think about antibiotic resistance. That's the canonical mechanism by which we see failure when it comes to therapies. What we were able to do is build a clinical model of resistance preclinically. So we were able to take that resistance mechanism, create that environment, put it into the lab, and we were able to identify the target of a you know billion dollar a year drug where uh, most of the information that was known was that it you know broadly targeted the outside of the uh, um, cell membrane. We were actually able to figure out the specific you know phospholipid that the, the, the that this thing was targeting because we were able to understand how the bacteria was going to change and modify itself. And so we took this evolutionary approach. My experience with Sonia and my my own you know, disease, uh, you know, I was able to understand that resistance is a universal feature. It's not something that goes away um, or is uh, siloed to antibiotics or viruses. This is really something that is the yin and yang of life, right? We get put into this really tough situation. And fundamentally, what we're trying to do is figure out what are the different things, uh, choices that can be made, both, you know, from a person's perspective, but from a cellular perspective, how do I survive, you know, in this really tough environment? And what we realized was that we weren't looking at cancer in the environment that it was, you know, natively presented, right? We were basically taking calf serums, so like baby cow's blood and plastic and growing like human cancer cells in this, like these Petri dishes. And we're like, why doesn't our cancer drugs work? Like what's, what's wrong with us? Like, you know, it's like, well, nobody has cancer that's like bathed in cow's blood. Like no person on earth has that. And so why would we expect to get a reasonable response, a translatable response from that kind of experiment? And so we went back and looked at all these different assumptions and we said, how can we make a system that's as close to human uh, environment as possible? How can we create something? that takes into account the entirety of a cancer patient's you know, treatment. They don't stop getting treatment after seven days, but we develop drugs in the seven-day timeframe. You know, they have billions of cells, millions of cells, and we have to be able to account for all the heterogeneity and diversity that those different cells can have in terms of which um, you know, paths that they choose. But because we're not thinking of this as like a diverse, you know, uh, you know, organism that's separate from you know our, our bodies we're thinking of it as just this homogenous cancerous blob we're losing out on all of the the nuance that's important to actually understand this cancer which is why you know we focused on understanding cancer resistance and cancer therapies from a genetic standpoint we have a particular mutation things are are changing in this particular cancer this is the driver of the cancer but oftentimes when you target that driver with BRF you know targeted therapies or KRAS targeted therapies the cancer basically adapts they make modifications to that particular protein because that's not the thing that's keeping it alive. It's the thing that started the cancer, but it's not the thing that's keeping it alive. And so while we have all of these therapeutic modalities, whether it's antibodies, small molecules, CAR T therapies, bispecifics, that was essentially the, the bottleneck. How do we create molecules that target all of these different proteins? Now the bottleneck is kind of shifted. It's no longer how do we create chemistry and therapies that go after a particular target. It's how do we go after multiple targets at once to fundamentally shut down all the potential options for a particular cancer. And right now, there aren't technologies out there that enable you to see how the different uh, um, targets actually connect together, how they're going to respond over the long haul. And that's what our that's what our um, rescue system fundamentally does. We're able to culture these cells, develop resistance, and understand that long-term biological problem that they're going to solve for, and then develop therapies that specifically prevent that from happening. Amazing. Jen, Jake? The question was platform. 
The question was, again, so in NFX Bio, we like to invest in platform technologies and what make your core tech a platform tech? So what makes our core tech a platform tech is, is pretty simple and straightforward. We and many others for 20 years have known what the problem is, that when you make a vaccine, and look, I love vaccines. They're the greatest medical advance in sanitation and fire in terms of the number of people protected, but they do a poor job against rapidly mutating pathogens, which is why the initial waves of great success were against pathogens that don't mutate that quickly. So you could make a vaccine. And even though the pathogen, like the cancers, are constantly evolving, but some evolve slower than others. For the slower evolving pathogens, you vaccinate and the antibodies you produce mostly are going to cross to the pathogen and, and therefore you can knock it out. The problem is that we have a bunch of pathogens that evolve much faster and they do it on purpose to escape our immune systems. And it's a problem because it means what you're injected with is not the same thing as what you're infected with and the infection escapes. And this is why we're stuck in this never-ending cycle of having to make a new vaccine for flu twice a year. It's why we're updating the coronavirus vaccines and why they gave us all those crazy booster shots is because the truth is it wasn't, it was increasingly different, the new virus from the original coronavirus strain. And so they were just boosting you over and over again to get what little antibodies you had left that were relevant to, to, to be as abundant as possible. And it's why we don't have like a working HIV vaccine yet. So that was sort of the problem. And for a long time, people were just, you know, tearing their hair and saying, oh, it's hopeless. You can never get around this. We'll just be stuck in this never ending Sisyphusian cycle with uh, the flu and so forth. Uh, and then this beautiful thing happened about 20 years ago. People started saying, wait, hold on a second. Like when we're looking, some people, these lucky devils are hitting some genetic jackpot and they're producing these broadly neutralizing antibodies that were binding conserve sites on the viruses. And they're therefore neutralizing all of them of a class of like influenza or all of HIV. And that was like sexy for two reasons. One is that it told you that the virus has had an Achilles heel. There's some spot they couldn't mutate or the virus died. And if you can get an antibody against it, you'd be protective. And second, it told you that people could produce those. And as soon as we found that out, then the question was like, well, wait a second, why aren't our vaccines always doing that? If it's always there, why do we always miss? And that created the arms race to try to make universal vaccines. The problem is that the immune system is super complicated and diverse, and the tools were relatively primitive to go crack open the hood of this engine that wasn't working to try to fix it. I just kind of got lucky. I was at the right place at the right time where I started looking in immunology and computational systems immunology right when the arms race of the better, faster, cheaper genome sequencer had reached the point that it, instead of in a warehouse, it fit on a bench top. And I started applying it to looking at the immune system of immunized animals and people to try to figure out why we miss. And problem to make it simple is that there's huge numbers of ways antibodies can bind to a, a spike protein. And most of those sites it could bind to can mutate. And it's only a few sites that, that don't. And the odds are like 100,000 or a million to one to hit the right site, which is why some people made them and they published on it, but most people miss because the right answer is hidden in an ocean of wrong answers. And so our technology platform, which the patent, the Genesis patent and the series of patents that follow are just solve that general problem is how do you focus the immune system on the conserved sites? And the way we do it is taking an evolutionary snapshot of lots of proteins, mixing them and then diluting them so that only the shared site that hasn't mutated in 100 years is at a high enough concentration by having small amounts of multiple proteins, only the shared site is abundant and therefore the entire immune system focuses on the shared site. This turns out to work amazingly well. We've applied it to influenza and that's the thing we're initiating manufacturing on with the help of NFX starting in January. Um, we've applied it to uh, earlier to the coronaviruses and HIV. We've even applied it, we 
ask ourselves, we don't think it's just viruses. We we think there's other pathogens we could tackle like malaria, fungi, some bacteria. Not everywhere. There's some pathogens like tuberculosis. It doesn't really mutate quickly to escape. It's got other problems, but there's like 18 pathogens we can think of right now that are really important. We even to test it, we went all the way out to snake venom and we took snake venom from 14 species from all around the globe and we mixed together a tiny amount of 14 different and that produced this ultra broad response. And that that really speaks to the breadth and the power of the platform. And and the other power of the platform is that it's tractable. You can build this thing. Sometimes in synthetic biology, people come up with some cool thing, but you're you're never going to construct it. It's never going to be stable in a syringe. You're never going to manufacture enough for it to matter, or it's going to be crazy expensive. Whereas our technology, the the power of it is that we have a lot of flexibility to bioengineer it so it's going to work right. And we can mass manufacture it on commoditized equipment throughout the globe, which means we can actually change change that globe. Yeah, I have to say that's kind of the joy of investing in companies in this space, not just the joy of working with you guys, but just thinking about the impact when the thing would work, you know, get our revenge on COVID, one yeah. <laughs> injection to for all to, to squash all the mutations. But you know, in, in Jurassic Park, they said that life finds a way. So how can you be sure that nature and evolution won't find a way through your approach too? Right, Jake? Sure. So um, I'll answer it and then I, I'm 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 sure Nick's going to answer this question as well, because we actually work in very parallel worlds, which is cool. The first generation of vaccines that eradicated smallpox and got pretty close to eradicating a bunch of other pathogens, those ones overcame. You know, those ones, all pathogens evolve. It's just those ones weren't evolving fast enough compared to the advantage of the vaccines that were offered. The challenge with the ones that can still evolve to escape is that we need better focusing on more conserved sites. To focus on a conserved site is the same thing as to target a pathogen that evolves less quickly because that site evolves less quickly. And so all we need is to improve our pacing. Uh, nature can be clever, but nature's lost to us before. We crushed smallpox. We've crushed most others. We can beat this. It's really just a racing game and putting a better engine under there that's going to give us that advantage. The way to think about it with flu is that the sites that we're targeting haven't changed one site hasn't changed in thousands of years and the other site we know hasn't changed in at least 200. And so those that gives you a sense of oh, how the hell is it going to change in the next 20 years? And and I think it's going to be tough to win against every one of these pathogens, but I think we can start eradicating a new generation of pathogens in our lifetimes and that will benefit people a thousand years from now. Amazing. And you know, it's it's uh, always fun to think that we can we can be clever than you know, smarter than nature. So oh, yeah, we can hopefully. smash the mutants. Smash the mutants. Smash the mutants. <laughs> and Nick yeah, I mean, so <clears throat> I think one of the things about evolution that uh, was really scary to me at the beginning was that there are so many possibilities that things could do so many different ways that a particular cell or an organism could solve a particular problem. I mean, like we're doing that right now with, you know, the thousands and thousands of people studying cancer. We're looking at it in a different way, you know, and applying a different approach. Um, and so when it comes to cancers, what we realized was that there are a lot of rules that these cancers play by but we don't know what those rules are. And so it's going to do something that it knows how to do because it either has the uh, machinery or infrastructure in place um, or it's proliferating in such a way that it can sense you know, when things are going wrong and make adjustments so that that cell maintains that survivability. And what we found was that the problem isn't that there are too many resistance mechanisms. It's that we just haven't learned enough about all the different evolutionary pathways that a particular cancer can take. And so once you start to figure out these rules and really apply pressure to these different cancers with the different therapies that we've developed, as well as novel ones, what we're able to do is come together with this kind of atlas of resistance. What are the, um, you know, 
multiple universes with which that this cancer can adapt? And how do these different uh, adaptations interact with each other? Because we're, we're basically gone from the day where, you know, we can go after single particular proteins in the cancer space. We have to go after a multiplexed, you know, a multi-targeted approach, because if we're not going after multiple different sites, we're allowing back doors for these cancers to escape through. And so eventually uh, we'll get to a point where life won't find a way but we still have to understand the rules and the, the, um, the, the different uh, uh, you know, techniques that these cancers have uh, to survive. Now let's switch gears and talk about the dark side, the business model, right? So both of you have your bio platform and you monetize it in a different way, right? So resistance uh, help other pharma companies while during that time uh, get a lot of data that will allow you to develop your own drugs. Well, Centivax is actually developing your own vaccines all the way, right? Uh, so can you explain your business approaches and how your platform allow you to try different models? Yeah, our you know, our approach is pretty straightforward. We are producing a broad spectrum vaccine for influenza. We're initiating manufacture. We're going to start phase one clinical trials. After that, we're going to work on phase two and phase three clinical trials. And there's non-dilutive potential funding from government agencies to potentially support that because pandemic preparedness and seasonal protection from influenza is a big deal that governments care about. So it's not a guarantee, but we fit right in a, in a place where even before the pandemic, governments knew that there had been five pandemics of the last century in influenza alone and more are coming. So that's a straightforward mo model for us. And, and we're following the same model, the same playbook for coronavirus and HIV, line them up, produce them, knock them through. Along the way, another part of our model is that they, there are veterinary applications for some of our vaccines. And for example, pigs also get influenza and it's $180 million per year market. Now, I don't want to turn into a veterinary uh, vaccine producing company. My focus is on humans, but I think that first off, they're actually echoing next point. There's a real danger in bioscience where people sometimes produce these very artificial models and then they convince themselves, they go through this ridiculous model they've set up to prove success and then they get shocked later when their drug fails. And it's tautological. And the best way to defend yourself by that is to not work on the easy and obvious model like a mouse all the time. Mouse are a terrible model for flu. They don't really get flu. You have to engineer them. People have come to wrong conclusions from mice. And also like you make the best vaccine for a mouse. Like you have, nobody's going to buy that. Nobody cares about a mouse um, versus pigs. A farmer loves that pigs. Your vaccine better work. They, they get the same kind of flu as we do. It's a $180 million market and that's helpful to us. So what we do is we uh, are aiming to license that vaccine out to veterinary uh, groups. That's an earlier source of revenue for us. It's also just great, uh, a great opportunity to establish and get our, our, our broad spectrum vaccine technology out and commercial commercialized in a mass way. And as I mentioned earlier, pigs are the major source of new pandemics. So they get infected with human viruses, pig viruses, and bird viruses, and they shuffle them up on these mega farms. And that's how new pandemics pop out. And so being able to have vaccinated pigs is one step closer to pushing influenza out of the human experience. And so that, that's our market. You can't always do that for every virus, but anytime I can, I always use the animal model. It might be a little more expensive, but it's much more relevant. There's a market for it, and you're making sure you build a drug that works. And I think that that's a hidden an invaluable part of making sure that you you don't waste time on tricking yourself through an artificial model. And, and so that's that's our business model. I, I actually really love that. I mean, I think one of the things that's important for uh, people in the infectious diseases uh, to, to really understand is how interconnected these reservoirs are. And so often when you look at a lot of these companies, they're so focused on just like the patient, they're not looking at the broader problem. And I love this evolutionary approach focus on the problem at the source and also take care of it in the patient. That's not something that you typically see. 
Cool. And Nick, uh, so what can you tell us about <clears throat> resistance bio business model? And how do you apply the, the platform approach to, to work on different models? I was listening to like Jeff Bezos and when he was doing his like Amazon, like what made Amazon Amazon and why did he focus on books initially? Um, and so initially I focused on bacteria, but there's really not a market for bacteria. Antibiotics just don't work really well. Um, but there are hundreds and hundreds of different types of cancers, just like there are, you know, all these different books. It's one of the biggest categories of disease. Um, and each cancer has multiple different subtypes that you have to understand. And so to me, cancer was the biggest subset of disease that had a um, that had evolutionary games that we could learn and understand without having to worry about um, like outside reservoirs of like resistance coming in like you know uh, cows for antibiotic resistance um, you know bringing that into the community most patients who have cancer aren't going to give their cancer to somebody else and so we can actually look at these evolutionary trajectories and pathways in a given patient knowing that they're not going to be spreading different uh, uh, genes uh, from patient to patient, we could really focus on um, what does cancer in non-small cell lung cancer do and how does it um, and how does it evolve? And so what we realized was that there's just so many cancer types out there and there are so many targets um, uh, that it was almost it, it was a, a it was a selfish decision to only bring this kind of platform internally because it has so many applicabilities to all the different compounds that are out there. We really wanted to make sure that we were partnering with companies so that they understood all the landmines that were in front of their compound, right? Because like everybody has to walk across this field um, to go from discovery all the way through to an NDA approval and then post-marketing, you know, adoption. And this landmine, you know, this, this, this field of landmines is there. These experiments to try to like reveal where these landmines are, but we can only see like a step or two ahead. And so what our system allows is for somebody who's at the preclinical stages, I have a molecule, I have a particular target. We can basically reveal to them the entire landmine field um, going from the beginning to the end. We could tell them, does your molecule even have a path through, right? And so we like to partner with companies on really understanding not only what is the target that they're going after, but how does that uh, cancer respond to that therapy over time so that we can better hone in the patient population as well as start to identify combination therapies up front. And kind of getting to your point too, Jacob, um, about like this evolutionary conservation, what we noticed is just much like, you know, those airplanes, that, that airplane design, uh, the bomber, right? Basically yeah. like, you know, you had the airplane bomber going in and dropping bombs during the Pacific, you know, World War II uh, and the planes that would come back that had all the bullet holes. Um, those, those were the areas of the plane that you didn't need to reinforce because those were non-lethal areas. Every part of the plane that didn't have a bullet hole, that was the part that if it got hit, it would break apart. And so we can also start to identify these evolutionarily conserved spots within the particular target protein, um, not just from an evolution standpoint, but from a perturbation standpoint. Many of these proteins have never been perturbed. And so there hasn't been an evolutionary pressure to change. And so this allows us to actually figure out what are all the different ways that we can go after this particular protein now that there is a, a way to go after and target that uh, in a non-natural way? And so this allows us to understand this new kind of panacea of evolutionary changes that happen only as a result of us developing therapies um, as a community to target these cancer types. Like we're, we're literally creating an evolutionary field that exists before these therapies uh, existed. 
I actually use that exact same analogy when we think about our work. <clears throat> Your stuff is really cool. So it seems like you, you have the ability to go, you could provide advice on creating combination therapies mm -hmm. pretty effectively because you can basically do the intersection of the two fields and understand how to maximize restriction points. Do you also look at staging? Because it also seems like you might be able to provide guidance of a molecule on what stage is most appropriate for a cancer's progression. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the biggest things that we're running into is a lot of patients are treated with chemotherapy up front because they don't know that a targeted therapy could be effective. And so what happens is we have these chemotherapies, you get given to these patients, they lose their hair, they lose that that self-dignity. I mean, these are, these are the quotes from people that I've talked to. And more importantly, what happens to the cancer is you've created um, a, an event where you've basically told the cancer to like break apart all of its DNA and the stuff that dies, great. The stuff that survives now has this recombined genome that's so much more complicated, so much more difficult to treat. And now this patient, because they've given them chemotherapy as the very first therapy, this patient is now on a trajectory of poor outcomes. Whereas if they just took the time to figure out what is this cancer doing? What is the cancer like going to do in the future? We can actually start to put the right patients on the right therapies up front so that we can guide the tumor to a state of susceptibility rather than a state of, you know, there's no, there's no solution. We can't, we've, we've screwed it up too much. And so this is a way for us to simplify the problem um, that is so complex. Yeah, I love how you create a theater where the cancer is actually, you know, doing the experiment for you. It actually yeah. shows you all the different ways it can mutate out of the drug. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like Ender's Game, right? Like, let the bugs tell us, you know, like, love the bugs, you know, like, figure out exactly all the things that it's going to do so that you can beat them. I mean, that's, that's the, it's the same approach. Really empathize with the cancer, figure out what it wants to do, and then use that as the means of killing it. The gate is all the way down. <laughs> That's similar to what we do with the the viruses is like, I love the viruses that have been around for a while, like flu and HIV, because they've given me these massive databases of sequences and it does the same thing. It immediately tells me the conserve sites. It lets me pick variation. And for the ones that I don't have as much luxury, it's like coronavirus is newer. So we have enough variants to pick, or, uh, but we've actually built a mammalian display system where we have a synthetic library of hundreds of millions of novel RBDs. And we, so we search through that to be able to better explore a space where nature hasn't given us the freebie of huge numbers of sequences. So it sounds analogous to what you're doing in some ways. That's very cool. I mean, I love how evolution, which is like this fundamental principle of life, um, can be applied so universally across different diseases because it's fundamental. It, like, it is the thing that allows change to happen, right? Yeah. Um, and if you understand that, you understand those rules, uh, you can develop therapies that just couldn't have existed before. And uh, I'm really excited to see what the world looks like uh, with these new vaccines and uh, you know with these new cancer therapies. Yeah, there's a reason why uh, both of you are in this podcast together. And that's a great segue for the next uh, question, because, you know, you all you all have amazing platform companies and platform companies means that you can do a lot of things. That's part of the beauty of the platform company. You, you have many indications you can go after and and you can partner some of them. It opens up a lot of doors uh, on the business side. But then the one of the major pain points for all our companies is deciding what to do first. Because you can do so many things and you don't have enough money to do everything that you want to do. So the main question is like, how do you decide what to tackle first? Like, you know, how do you choose? So I choose in the same way that the cancers in our body choose who takes over and the viruses choose. And that is you, you have them battle, battle it out and then may the fittest one win. And so what I do is I ask myself, what are the various applications? that we could work on. And you know that each one that you work on is an opportunity cost to work on a different one. 
And so you rank them and you make a decision of what's the coolest thing you could possibly work on. I've done this my whole life. I like coming up with new ideas. But what I typically do, I have a series of black books behind me and I write them down in that book and I ignore it for a couple of weeks and I come back and continuously review. And over decades of doing that, what has percolated to the top are the things that I think of all the things in there, these are the coolest, these are the most important, and these are the things that have the biggest impact. And therefore, nothing else deserves to climb up above that in the ladder. And, and that forces you first off, to pick your, your greatest works to work on. And it gives you a sense of, okay, I, I know that I could do that, but if you juggle more than too many balls, you're going to start dropping them. And and so that's basically the strategy is a merit-based dominance of the, of the most valuable target areas. And the other principle is there should be a a network of relatedness. If you're working on one, more than one thing, there should be active synergy between the things so that empowering one empowers the other. If you're working on three disparate things, that's the worst pace scenario. If you're working on three things that are all actually the same thing and they're aligned and learning from one thing empowers the other, and you have uh, tools that they're all going to flow through, then you, what you have is a pipeline and you're and by inform, any, any opera any optimization on any step of that pipeline will benefit all of the programs. And that that's, that's, that's where you're surfing. That's where you really want to be on top of that wave. And so that's, that's our tactic. I think that last piece is I listened to my, my lab team, which is like, Jake, no more. And so then uh, that also is the feedback point. Yeah. I think, I think for us, uh, we, so we didn't think what we initially offered was cool enough. Um, and so like for us, like we, we developed this, this box, we drove resistance to it, created the cell population, identified a combination of drugs, drove resistance to that, and then identified a triple combination that prevented the cancer from like actually evolving or escaping. And so we spent a whole bunch of time building this thing because we thought that anything less than that wasn't going to be sufficient for our pharma partners. And then we started talking to our pharma partners. They were like, wait, 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 you can create a cancer resistant cell line and it's like accurate. And we're like, yeah, yeah. But like, that's not the cool part. The cool part is that we can make combinations and then we've done it. And like, that's the great part. And they're like, no, 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 I don't give it. I don't care about that part. I care about the fact that you were able to create a stable resistant cell line with novel compounds and existing ones. And it was like relevant to the patients. And we're like, yeah, yeah. But like, that's, that's easy for us. Like, that's not the exciting thing. It's like all this other stuff. <laughs> it's like, no, we had to listen to our customers and our customers told us, this is what we want. This is where your technology fits in. And all of the stuff that we want to do later on, it still fits into the process. We had to figure out where are we going to sell um, this technology first. And once we found that kind of access point, that was where we were able to then develop those technologies and really focus on that part. And I think if I had like a superpower, it would be clarity. Like how could I tell the story to my team and to our investors and to our stakeholders in the simplest, most impactful way possible. And if I could do that, like everything else wouldn't matter, right? Like I could hire the right operations people. I could hire the right scientists because I could tell a compelling and convincing story. And that's really what I focus on in my day-to-day -day is how do I simplify my message um, to be that person? It's so funny. It reminds me of our first board meeting where I, I, I stopped after half the meeting and I told you something to the point of like, pharma companies are telling you, shut up and take our money. Yeah. And it's very profitable. <laughs> why, yeah. why aren't you taking their money? <laughs> what the hell? Well, we weren't really sure if it was going to be good enough. You know, it's like all that like uh, imposter syndrome. And then like when you had people like telling us that like, hey, you actually have something that's not only correct, but it's like worth money. Um, it was like that retraining of that academic mind, right? Like it's... um you know, it, it's, uh, it was difficult. Um, and so I, I think that's the thing that I would also recommend to like, uh, scientific founders is really take all of the learning that you got in grad school, especially like the negative stuff around like culture and that stuff. And really ask yourself, how does that, um, 
uh, help or hinder me moving forward? And what about this um, uh, this environment can I create in, uh, in my company that's going to actually make the company better? Cool. So again, moving to another gear. Uh, so both of you have recently raised your seed round and the NFX, you know, we love uh, to be able to lead those rounds. Uh, I guess I'll start with Jake because we just announced today about your $10 million round. But what did you learn during the fundraising process? You know, what question did investor ask you the most? Sure. So first off, thanks, NFX. Woohoo. Um, <laughs> some of the things I'm going to say are unique because of the... It was, I would, it's fair to say this was a unique funding cycle in this last year. But I, I came into it kind of unique because in my, my last company, Distributed Bio, I never fundraised for it. It was profitable from the inception. We took a $1 million loan at one point from a group called Broad Oak, but otherwise it was always profitable. And so I was like a professional at doing uh, business pitches for partnerships. And we did 78 antibody discovery and optimization campaigns, but I never did venture pitching. So I, and I, I built up that business and look, that works and I'm proud of it. But the truth is, if you want to do something really big, that's not going to cut it. I can build a service business like that and I can get to a certain level, but to change the world, it's not that's not going to work. And so to get into clinic and to really escalate, you need partners. And it's it's not just the money. It's also that you guys have like global networks and you have expertise and you've watched a bunch of companies go through this process successfully. And all of those things are critical to go to the next step. So my experiences were, I would say initially a little rocky. I was like getting ready to do it. And I was realizing the culture is a little different, right? Because the, the type of things that you care about in a pitch are going to be different. And the other one was I learned pretty quickly, but there was a boot up phase of being like, okay, there's certain expectations of the structure of a data room and the structure of pitch decks and the structure of the kind and the, the pacing of uh, various activities be, to basically prove that you have your shit together and, and, and to make it digestible. It's not just enough that it's in there. It needs to be kind of in a cultural format that people are used to reviewing to try to, to be respectful to the time of the person reviewing it. If it looks weird, it's going to be harder for them to look at. So I think that was a little bit of my, my early boot up phase. And then um, the kinds of questions they ask, I don't know, they all kind of made sense to me, honestly. Like I, I learned to do business really from my father running a restaurant in a hotel in Guatemala. And it's like this business translates everywhere. You have basic things. It's like, okay, can you build it? Can you get people to show up to buy it? Do you have the right group of people? And are they doing the right things? And, and, you know, are you going to be able to execute and how are you going to handle it when things go wrong? And I think though, and, and is it going to make money? Have you priced everything successfully? Have you expressly judged that market? And so I think those things come relatively naturally to us. There's unique aspects of, because you're building into an existing market, but you're going to disrupt it in some ways. There's going to be differences and you need to have a strategy in place. I felt that we were strong on areas of responding to the plan because that's what we're naturally good. You know, having Gantt charts and every SOWs, organ, SOWs organized, like I was in the CRO space, so I know how to navigate it extremely well and, and leverage it effectively as opposed to what we do in-house. The interesting questions for me were also the questions I had back to the VC groups. I was like, you guys have seen a lot of companies succeed and fail. Like, I want to know what am I missing? What have you succeed? What is, what's that thing where you see it and you're like, oh, that sounds good. Or if you see it, oh, that sounds like a problem. Cause I've seen, I've been to that movie before and things messed up. And so I would, I think I asked those questions back a lot and I took notes on the questions people asked me. Um, in general, they were technical to, you know, uh, what's your strategy for manufacture? And that's a that's a basic kicking the tires question to make sure that you're someone's not coming in the room with an idea and no plan to execute. And so those were easy. I think there were questions about how to evolve a team as you grow. Uh, as one example, I would say over the last year, I've increasingly got interested as we go forward. Ultimately, I'm going to get like a chief of staff or something. I think as right now the size. It's fine, but for instance, at Distributed Bio, as we got to above about 30 people, that became very important for me to have someone who basically could act as a chief of staff internally to, to keep track of everything. Um, those were questions. 
questions that were important. Um, I think some of the questions also were kind of like who you know and where that network was and the realization that being able to to know everybody in this space, know them well and be able to pick up a phone call just to respect their time so you don't waste time with a meeting and also get their insights. That's really powerful. And that's something I'm going to be focusing a lot of my time on in the next few years is growing outside of, I have a great network in biotechnology and the people building antibody drugs. I think what I want to be focusing on over the next few years is building just a dynamite network among the global investors uh, and 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 the decision makers for vaccine licensing and partnership deals in pharmaceutical companies. So um, I I got my I cut my teeth in the business world um, when I was an office furniture salesman for my dad. Uh, he had an office furniture store, and um, so like I would do B two B sales like during like the economic downturn of two thousand eight two thousand nine. Um, my job was to call businesses that had just laid off a whole bunch of people. <clears throat> And get them to buy office furniture um, for the people that no longer work there. Uh, and so, like for me, it was really trying to understand what was the problem that they needed to solve for, right? And for them, oftentimes the problem was, you know, they had just you know laid off a whole bunch of staff, and so what they wanted to do was a refresh of the company, right? They were they were going to have to bring in new people once the economic downturn, you know you know, left, uh, you know, came back. And so they wanted an office that was going to represent that new kind of fresher face. And so even though they had let go a whole bunch of people and it was painful, this was an opportunity for them to get rid of their old stuff and like feel like the company was still successful, even though the numbers didn't necessarily say that. Um, and so that was how we were able to sell just like tons of office furniture to these companies and also increase our, um, our, uh, uh, you know, inventory of used furniture because people still wanted that. But what that really taught me was that you have to get the right message to the right person. And if you're not aligned on what their objectives are uh, and what their pain point is, um, it's going to be really difficult to sell something, right? Uh, whether it's VCs or partners or whoever. Um, and so I, I really took a lot of that experience um, with me um, to, to, to this um, kind of investment section. And uh, one of the things that I learned both uh, at office furniture sales and with this is that fundamentally it's about, um, you know, how well you show up and how well you um, execute on the things that um, you're asked of, right? Like, you know, are you responsive? Are you following up in a timely manner? Um, because for most, for all intents and purposes, this is maybe like the first or second time that you've ever interacted with these VCs and they're not going to know you from, you know, the tube of toothpaste. They need to know what your trajectory is. And if you can demonstrate that you're a fast mover, that you do the things that need to get done and that you can hear the investor effectively so that you can answer those questions, um, that's really where I think the best partnerships come in. Um, and then also just making sure there's a good fit with the investor that you're working with and the investor, um, you know, like, and you, right? Like you have to make sure that that partnership is there. There were a number of people that we could have taken money from that I think would have been a bad fit um, with this economic downturn. They would have wanted us to spend money. And I think Omri did a great job of, you know, guiding us on, you know, understanding our product and really pushing us towards revenue. Um, and so like, you know, being confident in your own business model and then identifying people that really, um, you know, understand it, I think is important. That's very smart. I wish I was as smart as you when I raised money when I was a Santis founder, uh, founder back in 2011. Because you know, I look back, I had uh, 
I have a folder full of pitch decks that I used. I think I counted them, 148 different versions <laughs> of my pitch deck. And after I've been an investor for like a week, I looked back at my pitch deck and I said, oh my God, I was so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know how investors think. And I didn't think, I, yeah. like I, I talked, I told all the things they don't care about. Like now that I'm an investor, I know how investors think. It's so obvious to me. And I try now to talking to founders to tell them like the truth. Like you always get what you incentivize. In the end, you want to make money. Money, especially like look if your company is successful we did huge impact in the world but we also made a shit ton of money <laughs> which is yeah. that's the best of both worlds right so and because of the power law of investing where most of the companies will not return any anything and only a few will matter you need that any each investment that you make will be something that has the potential to return the fund and the question we ask are those like is it big enough can it be big enough to return our fund do you have defensible magic technology and are you the right people to execute on this uh, defensible magic technology in this huge market to return our fund so once you understand that you know how you tell the story is way easier so in that regard like what what advice would you give other platform founders satis founders in tech bio looking to raise especially right now in this downturn uh, so <clears throat> i guess the biggest thing for me is um you know we're, we're both talking about evolution right and i think the point that you made omri was that um as you go through these pitches you have to make adaptations and change um and so i think really the thing that i would advise you know these academic scientists and founders who are really used to failure and seeing failure in their day-to-day -day, um is to recognize that that's not a failure that's an opportunity to learn and grow um and so use that feedback that you get from your investors use that feedback that you get from the different um, interactions that you have um not as like a criticism of you but as a opportunity to get stronger and better and just really focus on uh, taking in as much of that feedback as possible um, and uh, sorting through it and then, you know, being the best version that you can be. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice. I'd echo it. I think uh, Emily LaProus once told me, she's like, when you go into a pitches, she's like, is exactly what Omri said. And that was my experience, too. When I first went in, they were rough. I revised those slides repeatedly. And, and cause I was also, I was culturally adapting from like sales to biotechnology research groups to VCs. And, uh, she's like, the, the first ones are going to suck and people are going to give you advice. And I think I'm quoting her as close as I can here. She's like, nowhere will someone give you more honest advice is in the moment when they explain to you why they're not going to invest. And she's like, it sounds difficult, but it's a gift because they'll say, this is why your baby is ugly. And what it, you can take from that is you can learn okay, what did I, because I know my baby is beautiful. What did I do to fail to communicate it? And it lets you refine and focus. It lets you understand how to change the model if necessary. And it lets you move forward. If it's hard for people to hear that stuff. And I think, you know, academics are trained not to like negative feedback, but you got to hear it because it's it's good business advice. It's good pitching advice. And, and you might learn something useful to let you focus your, your, your company. Um, find a way to get someone in the room to write it down for you and then to spend some time to review it. I think that's helpful. I also have some practical advice. I think like I'm enamored by in an early startup, right? When it's getting started, I think there's various stages where seed funding can happen, but like right in the first, you know, year or few first few months, there's like safe instruments for friend and family. I find very effective. I think I, my impression is that many startup groups that I meet with, I think they, they spend money stupidly early on. And I just, I have someone in the room is cheap and like make them with power because I think it's, it's so easy to watch people do a series of choices where they're willing to spend stupid amount of money early. And then they're whining that they ran out of it. Also be willing to take sacrifices. Like I, I, 
I find this frequently where people are like, oh, Jake, I want to work with you, but I can't take less than this amount of salary when I'm creating a startup. And I'm just like, honestly, I don't think you have the risk profile for startups. Like you want the big reward, but you don't want the risk. Like I'm, I'm going to warn you, this is going to be harder than you think. It's going to take longer than you think. And you're going to have to be dedicated to it. And so it's the personality you should be, if you believe in what you're building and you're going to bring something new, you should be willing to take sacrifices to achieve it because there's a reward that's happening at the end. And that's honestly going to align you to get you out of bed every day if you're, if that's the kind of thing that motivates you. So those are the advice I'd have. I also just have friends of mine that have startups. I, I met a lot of them. I see varied groups, some of which smell like victory to me. And some of them, I feel like they're really going to struggle. And, and one area is I think if it's only academics, it's quite possible you have a group with a very large set of blind spots and you might not have anybody with reasonable business sense, in which case get somebody in there who can do that because otherwise you're going to all happily burn the company to the ground overspending and not being focused. And so those are, I think, are the the, the key things to be able to do early on. Um, and, and the last thing is, you know, connect up to the network and get funded because it's going to tap you into a network. And that network also is going to identify blind spots for you, help you polish them and help you refine what you're working on. It's going to force you to even get there to be able to do that with your company. I think those things are all going to help you um, drive to that point where you you have you have something beautiful and you're 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 sending it up the ramp. I think just one last thing to that. Um, don't don't involve your PI in your startup company if you're <laughs> the best, if you're a PhD student or a postdoc. Like graduate, get out of the lab, then do your thing. Um, make sure that there's a really clean separation. Uh, it can cause a lot of problems that you don't yeah. necessarily need to worry about. You're both building really exciting companies. Uh, let's talk about the future, right? If you could look into the future, what do you hope your platform accomplished? So I don't know exactly where humanity's going, but I know at some point it's going to be without pathogens. And this is something that we don't even have to demonstrate this generation. They did it in the 70s. We are in a golden age. And so a lot of that work could be done right now with our hands. We're not, I don't think my work right now is going to solve every pathogen. Some of them are really tough and really difficult. But I think if we could eradicate a few of them in my lifetime, and you know, I'm greedy, so I want to go after as many as possible. Uh, that is a lasting legacy that will benefit every generation of humanity until there is no more humans left, whatever that ultimate fate may be. And so I think that is a worthy, worthy exercise. Like I, you know, I grew up in a little Mayan village in Guatemala and I, I watched as I returned, um, after traveling to the States that over year after year, the new generations of kids were like a foot taller than their parents. And what, what happened was they started handing out deworming medicine in the schools. And it turns out giving deworming medicine caused people to massively change their height compared to all the generations. Like by the time I was 10, my brother and I could look across the entire market and we could see each other because we were taller than everyone in Santiago. It was not genetic. It was driven by chronic uh, pathogen infect, uh, infection, malnutrition. And giving that medicine wasn't just they got taller. It means they could focus better in school. They could be more productive in their careers. It led to like more healthy lives and letting people spend less time on medicine and fixing broken selves and more time on doing what humans are fundamentally magnificent at, which is creating new and wonderful things. And so I think that's the future that I see is that these pathogens don't need to exist anymore. We already managed to kill one, we can kill again. And if we wipe them out, it's a it's a service to every generation that happens afterwards. And, and I and the future at some point is going to be a future without humanity of without pathogens. And we should we should work to get there. So that's what I see. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to that. I mean, frankly, the <laughs> the reason why cancer is going to become a more problematic thing to treat is because, you know, antibiotic resistance and vaccine resistance is going to become more and more problematic and it's actually going to start affecting, you know, cancer therapies. I mean, the reason why cancer is a problem is because, like you said, like we actually have medications that allow people to live longer and healthier lives. Um, 
So for me, uh, you know, it's going to be pay people living long enough to get cancer, right? You know, because we are all alive, <laughs> because we've gotten these, you know, deworming medications or these, you know, rat, you know, getting killed by the flu. Um, and so for me, it's really uh, taking cancer and the fear of what that death sentence looks like when you hear the words cancer um, and really turning it into something you know, treatable, chronic, you know, it's, it's no different than Crohn's disease or, you know, um, an antibiotic infection from, you know, years past. It's something that's treatable, it's known, um, and it's not going to uh, be that death sentence that it was before. And your work is permanently necessary because, you know, cancer bubbles from within, it's going to be with us for as long as humanity exists. And so the work you do in this generation is going to give that lasting value of transforming how we interact with cancer for every generation that follows. So I look forward to living in your future world as well. Yeah, look, this is a great place to end. It's really inspiring working with you. And again, this is the fun part of investing in what we call this intersectional biology technology, where if you are successful, you're going to make a lot of money but also, you know, a huge, huge impact and lasting impact on the health of people. So again, pleasure working with you, exciting to work with you and exciting to see how the world look uh, with, with everything that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having Thank us on. If you like this episode, be sure to share with friends or founders who may like these insights. Also, be sure to subscribe to the NFX podcast on the platform of your choice. And thanks for listening to the NFX podcast.